turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Over at the Gospel Coalition, uh, our friend, Sarah Zylstra, we could definitely call her a friend. Love She's her. been on the show many times. Uh, Sarah Zylstra and Megan Hill on New Year's Eve wrote this article, Build Spiritual Habits in Just a Few Minutes. But uh, before we get into it about how to build habits in just a few minutes, Aubrey, I did want to start here because many of us are going, all right, it's the new year. I'm going to be mm-hmm. a new person. I'm going to do new things. Uh, why, uh, why is it important or is it important to speak in terms of habits rather than goals or resolutions? What is the power of habits and why are we more likely to keep those going? Great question. Uh, great question. I don't know if I have an awesome answer for that, except to say that even psychologically, habits feels a little more bite-sized and therefore a little more manageable. And as we all know, like if you, if you, begin a habit. And what do they say? After 30 days, it becomes just like a part of your uh, life. I think it's so, 28. I think it's 28 Is days. it 28? So I about think. a month, right? So I think just the concept of habits being these smaller things that are more manageable actually means you can accomplish them rather than like a goal. Like to say, I'm going to lose 25 pounds this year Mm -hmm. is really different than saying, hey, I'm going to eat smaller portions every two and a half hours. Like you eat every two and a half hours, you set your phone, that becomes a habit. Well, slowly over time, you maybe are eating healthier portions than you were. But just to say, I'm going to lose 25 pounds feels overwhelming. And I mean, that's not a great example, but I I think there's some psychological power to it is what I'm trying to say. That's great. Sarah Zylstra and Megan Hill, they did something fascinating in this article. I, I really, next time we talk to Sarah, we'll have to ask her how they thought this up. They started timing things. And oh, wow. Being, their point being... We, we make it seem like, so she, Sarah uses the example of making her bed and she always had her mindset was, I don't have time to make my bed. Hmm. And then she decided I'm going to do it and time it. And she realized to make her bed nicely and put the pillows on and get it all set and nice was 90 seconds. Wow. And she said that realization, she said my entire mindset shifted. I wasn't too busy to make the bed. I was just bad at estimating how long it would take (laughs) to accomplish. And so then she started going with the time estimation. How long would it take to fold the laundry, to read a book, to go for a walk? Let Mm. me just read some of these because they categorize them. Uh, let me just read a bunch of them and say, which ones blow your mind? And, and then I just love bigger, Aubrey. Do you think this is a helpful way to think about it? She okay. said, if you have 30 seconds, uh, you can pray for a friend, sing a verse of amazing grace, read a Bible verse aloud, sign up to receive daily comment- Bible commentary from something like the Gospel Coalition's Read the Bible Plan. If you have one minute, you can... Read the first prayer from the Valley of Vision. Sing two verses of most hymns. Print out a Bible reading plan. Read a Bible verse on an index card. Uh, give online to a charity. If you have three minutes, uh, she says, this is the time it takes to vacuum a room or make a K-cup of coffee. You can read the book of Philemon, Second John, or Third John. Write down things you're grateful for. Send an encouraging message to a friend. If you have five minutes, which is the time it takes to fold laundry. You can read or listen to the book of Jude. You can listen to a podcast, read a chapter of the screw tape letters. If you have 10 minutes, you can list the books you can read. You can write a page in your Hmm. journal. You can also take a shower. If you have 15 minutes, the time it takes to walk the dog or wash the dishes. She said you can read a longer book of the Bible. You can read an entire chapter of a book. You can do a prayer walk. Uh, you can send somebody uh, a letter or an email encouraging. And if you have 30 minutes, 
Uh, you can uh, read multiple books of the Bible or read multiple chapters. You hmm. can compete and complete an online Bible study. You can make a meal for someone. You can listen to a sermon online. Uh, wow. You can use your church directory to pay, pray for 50 members of your church by name. So hmm. uh, uh, it's just kind of goes on and on here. But Aubrey, what do you think of just uh, does your mind work that way of going, wow, actually, I do have the time for this. Uh, is time the hurdle? And this is, is this a helpful way to think about it? I, so I think if time is the hurdle, this is a great way to think about it. Cause you could even print this list out or snap a picture of it in your phone. And anytime you, you find that you have that, you know, like, oh, you wake up in the morning, man, I'm running late, but I do have 30 seconds. What can I do real quick? You can look at this almost like a, uh, like a guide. Okay. I've got this much time. You can look to it for a guy, you know, as a guide. So I, I like this concept. I, I will say just personally, I feel a little bit overwhelmed, like seeing all these options. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I'm sure that's not the intention. I think the intention is to underwhelm you. So this actually feels bite-sized and, and meaningful. I think for me, I'm just one. I just know myself. I want a slow morning and in the morning, I want to practice my time mm. with Jesus or, or have that habitual time with Jesus. But that's just how I work. That's my personality. That's the, the uh, season of life I'm in. Not everyone is in the season of life I'm in where I have the luxury of doing that. Mm. Um, and, and I also think for me, too, this is a... I'm going to say one more thing and then I'll go positive. I promise. Um, <laughs> I, I really have been praying for more margin in my life. Like right now, I feel like almost every moment of my life is filled with something. And so this almost feels overwhelming to me to be like, oh, I've got five minutes. Okay. I need to read or sing or what if instead, like one of the options was you breathe for five minutes and you mm. practice silence, you slow down for five minutes. Like so I, I wish something like that was on the list. That said, what I love about Sarah and obviously Megan helping her co-write this as well is they're passionate about you just spending time with Jesus, having a spiritual discipline yes. in 2022 that's life-giving. And they're saying, look, this doesn't have to take an hour. This doesn't even have to take 45 minutes. There are small little bite-sized ways you can connect with the Lord and you can build into a lifestyle of connecting with the Lord. And so mm -hmm. I think in that way, this is an incredible tool. I've never thought about doing it this way. I, I, it's interesting. Yeah, I think these habits, and I think you touched on this, time is an issue. Do I have time to work out? Do I have time to mm. go on a weekly date with my wife? Do I have time to read my Bible? And we we think that we're busier than we are. And so yeah. we start to build. And that's where this is helpful. I would also suggest that it has a lot to do with a priority level, right? Like, uh, yes, I want to lose some pounds. But if the doctor came to me and said, if you don't lose some weight, then this is probably going to happen to you. My priority level goes up. <laughs> like I'm going to find Absolutely. I, yeah. If my marriage was really struggling and, the, and my counselor said, you need to go on a weekly date or you guys are going to end up probably divorced. I'm going up on that, right? So this be also becomes an issue of priority. So I'd encourage people out there, look at the time you have. Yes, but also think about what is my priority what are my priorities in the new year? What what are my priorities? What am I trying to live for? Uh, and then kind of line up myself that way. So I thought that's helpful. Grateful for Sarah Zylstra and Megan Hill uh, there. You can find that at the Gospel Coalition. Well, coming up next, Roland Warren. He's the president and CEO of CareNet, which is one of the largest networks of crisis pregnancy centers in North America. He's going to join us as we talk about his new book, Raising Sons of Promise, a guide for single mothers of boys. We're going to talk to him about that book, but also about CareNet and all that they're doing. Roland Warren is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey, I don't know uh, the different local organizations you guys at your church uh, support and partner with, but one that uh, we've supported through the years and, and been able to be a part of is CareNet. Doing such a good work there. CareNet is one of the largest networks of crisis pregnancy centers across North America and uh, really doing great work. And for that reason, uh, we are thrilled to be joined by the president and CEO of CareNet, also the author of a new book called Raising Sons of Promise, a guide for single mothers of boys. His name is Roland Warren. Roland, how are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. And I gave a little bit of your background, Roland, but before we jump into the book and talking about Karenet as well, could you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Well, sure, absolutely. Yes, as you said, I'm president and CEO of CareNet, which is a, a network of uh, pregnancy centers in the U.S. and Canada, one of the largest uh, networks that, that are out there. And I've uh, been with CareNet about uh, a little over nine years. Um, prior to that, I was uh, with uh, an organization called National Fatherhood Initiative, where I was really focused on helping men be better dads and was in the business world before God called me, as I tell people often, to the uh, lucrative world of nonprofit management. So it's been kind of amazing to do that. Um, Mary, uh, <laughs> Been married for be forty years yeah. in, in in May. Got uh, two uh, two sons, two daughter in laws, and uh, two and a half uh, grand grandchildren. So it's been amazing. So this issue that I'm talking about, family and 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 family dynamics and things of that nature, is something that's near and dear to my heart. And and the things that God has called me to since I left the business world have really been very much focused on, you know, how do you build strong families? How do you help men be the kind of uh, fathers uh, that they need to be and kind of husbands that they need to be? And then certainly, how do you protect the unborn? Uh, which really where all the parenting process starts really is with with the family structure. So it's kind of a kind of a real uh, interesting thing that God's kind of led me to, and it's been amazing to to be able to work in in this area. Well, Roland, we're super excited to talk to you about your new book, Raising Sons of Promise, a guide for single mothers of boys. I'm not a single mom, but I do have three sons. And so I am really excited about this book. But can uh, let's just step back for a minute and give us a big picture about what is this book about and why did you decide to write it? Yeah, well, you know, part of my story is that, you know, I grew up in a single mother home and frankly, pretty much in a lot of ways in a single mother community it was, it was really kind of that environment. And uh, my mom became a single mom when, when I was uh, probably six, seven years old. Uh, my dad wasn't really around very much. And, you know, I was kind of on this, this path and on this, this journey with my mom as, as a single mom. I was the oldest, uh, at least after my older brother died, uh, of, of her, of her four kids, uh, excuse me, for three kids at that point. And so, um, yeah, I wrote this book really to kind of help moms walk through that that journey and really from the perspective of this is what your son would say to you if he had the ability to say it to you if you at, when he was nine years old and one of the reasons I wrote the book and what really inspired me to do is I wrote, wrote another book called Bad Dads of the Bible Eight Mistakes Every Good Dad Can Avoid and the focus of that book was really helping men avoid these problems I looked at people at men in the Bible specifically through the lens of fatherhood and looked at you know all kinds of dads, David and, you know, Abraham and others. And, and one of the more difficult stories that I looked at was really Abraham and his role with Ishmael. And as I went through that story and kind of walked through that story, what I realized was that I am Ishmael. I had a similar dynamic in, 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 in some ways, and it really gave me this perspective that I really need to kind of look at this issue and, and kind of speak to single moms and, and kind of get them to tap into their inner Hagar, which was Ishmael's mom, and all the dynamics that were there. And so the book really uses Ishmael as an archetype for a boy growing up without his dad and Hagar as an archetype of, of, a, of, a, of a single mom. Uh, where a guy made promises to both of them and then didn't keep those promises. So that's the journey that you, that you go through in the book. Hmm. That's powerful, Roland. And I'm, I'm wondering, uh, for those of us who did not grow up uh, without a father, who did not grow up in a single parent home, uh, what effect did it have on you? What was it like for you growing up? And what is it that you want people to know uh, about children who grow up in those kinds of circumstances? Well, I think one of the things that I tell folks often is that kids have a hole in their soul in the shape of their dad. And if the father's unwilling or unable to fill that hole, it can leave a wound that's not easily healed. And I, I say that from the perspective as a wounded soul. And so one of the things that w really inspired me around this particular story was the last time you hear about Hagar is that, that it basically says that she found a wife for Ishmael. And really that set in my mind this notion that she had a vision for him, not just to be, quote, a good man, so to speak, but also a good husband and a good father. And it made me start to think about how many single mothers are asking that question. What kind of husband, what kind of father uh, is my son going to be? Not just what kind of man. And so I really wanted to write this book from that perspective because that's not really a question that's asked a lot. And certainly if you're a married mom, 
I mean, the reality is, I would think most women marry a guy who is the kind of guy that they would like their son to become, right? At least in the beginning, right? But when you're a single mom, you may not necessarily have that vision. And the reality is that he's going to have an opportunity potentially to have sex with somebody. And is he going to have it in the context of, 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 of husbandhood and fatherhood? Or is, or is it going to be the kind of situation that's going to replicate the cycle and produce another single mother home, uh, which, which is very challenging? And having watched my mom as a single mom, I know how difficult that is for women. And I know how difficult that is for kids. And so this book is really about kind of that process to help you on, on that, that journey uh, that you're on uh, with, with your son, to help him be that son of promise that God certainly would desire him to be. Mm, I love that title again, Sons of Promise. And Roland, you, you said this as a guide, and I know you don't want to give away too much of the book. You want people to purchase it. But are there some tips that you share in the book that you could share with our single moms who are listening right now? Yeah, I, I think that there, there's there are a number of different things, and I do encourage folks to uh, folks to do that. But I think a big part of the book, in terms of that, it really starts with with her. Um, you know, there's the old kind of the saying that you know when you're on an airplane and the, the flight attendant says, "Hey, if we have, have a loss of oxygen, make sure that you put your mask on before you try to put it on your child." Right. The same kind of thing here. So the first part of the book is really focused on her story, her, her, her inner Hagar dealing with that, her fatherhood issues, how she grew up, how her dad interacted with her and, and how that impacts, um, how she parents. And we kind of walk through that process. A key area here that's difficult and challenging is really dealing with the whole forgiveness issue about, you know, forgiving Abraham, the rule of Abraham in your life and how you walk through uh, that process uh, for yourself because it's going to be so important that you don't kind of sow seeds that are going to lead to unforgiveness as it relates to, to, your, to your son. So it's those kinds of things that we, we sort of walk through, particularly as it pertains, uh, pertains to her. Uh, for him, the key thing is really helping to cast a vision for your son. It's difficult to be what you don't see. So he's not growing up in a home with a, with a father that's loving him and a husband that's loving you. How do you help him become that? And so we walk through the process of how you cast that vision, how you engage other uh, men in his life that are going to be constructive to help him move him down that path. And so you can prepare him, uh, prepare him, for, prepare him to launch, which is really the, the next chapter. So he's not sort of this 25-year-old guy that's on your couch in the basement. <laughs> so so that's really what it is, a very hope-filled, proactive, uh, you know, sort of strategy-based uh, perspective. Helps you with child development, understanding him as, as he grows up as a boy and, and, and the differences between boys and girls that, that you may not necessarily know having grown up as a girl and then becoming a woman. So it covers a lot of those types of things. It sounds like a powerful book. Roland Warren is the president and CEO of CareNet. Uh, he is also the author of a new book called Raising Sons of Promise. Uh, Aubrey and I, we talk a lot about the pro-life movement here on The Common Good and uh, in our churches, but also on the radio. Uh, and just wondering, uh, help people understand the landscape right now for somebody who leads the largest network of crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, what What is going on culturally right now in kind of the abortion debate? What are you seeing and, and what is it like at CareNet right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, there's, there's been a lot of uh, legislation and judicial action around the life issue, what's been happening in Texas, Mississippi, what's before the Supreme Court. And so there's a real hopefulness that, you know, Roe v. Wade will be uh, overturned or, or restricted in some significant way. And I think that that's really critically important. Uh, but one of the things I tell folks all the time is that, you know, we've got to be prepared to win. You know, overturning Roe v. Wade will not outlaw sex outside of marriage, uh, unplanned pregnancies. And so the, the question is, are we really prepared to win? I mean, is our strategy a sea of single mother homes, if you will, if, if, if abortion is not available? And I don't think that that's really what we're called to do. So a key part of CareNet's ministry connected to our network of 1,200 plus pregnancy centers is the work that we're doing with churches through our Making Life Disciples ministry. Because really what we, what we need is folks in churches to come alongside people who are facing pregnancy decisions. So that even though, even if abortion is legal, it's still unthinkable. One of the things I tell people all the time is they say, when is Roe v. Wade going to be overturned? I tell them it's overturned every single day. Every single time she has an option to have an abortion and she chooses life, she overturned Roe v. Wade. But the key is that missing support that she needs um, in terms of why she's making that abortion decision uh, to begin with. And I think the last thing I'd say on that is really it, it's a transition that needs to happen for all Christians for us to view the life issue primarily through the lens of discipleship. 
We, we view other issues through that lens, water for the thirsty, food for the hungry, clothes for the naked. But we don't tend to view the abortion issue through that lens. We either view it through a, politi a political engagement perspective or maybe even material support. But it's primarily a discipleship issue because it's a good work. And any good works that Christians do should lead to discipleship. So when you see someone facing a pregnancy decision, your first thought should be, well, I wonder if she's a disciple of Jesus Christ. She needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. The child growing inside of her needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. The guy that is pregnant needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And when you think about the issue that way, it anchors it firmly in the church, in the ministry of the church, not something outside the church the church cares about, but something that's inside the church as a core ministry of the church. After all, our entire faith is built on an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective, and God, how God responded to that, which was by building a family, which is a core part of Karen's ministry model as well. Oh, I love that. Thank you for that word, Rollin. And, and you just speaking of church and how the church can come beside women, I, I want to go back to your book, Raising Sons of Promise, A Guide for Single Mothers of Boys. How can the church encourage single moms? Yeah, you know, that's it's such a great question. You know, one of the, the, the stories I tell in the book is about this one woman uh, who was a single mom and uh, got pregnant with her first child at 17, her second at, at 19, had really gotten disconnected from the church in a lot of ways, but felt called to go back there. And, and she went in, and it's kind of tough when you're going into a new church. And she said she was sitting in the pew after the service, and this woman just came up and she said, I see you. I see you. And she said that was such a powerful word of affirmation. And it really goes back to Hagar's story, because that's part of Hagar's story. Is, is, is that at the end, when you hear her after, you know, when she, when she meets this angel, and she said, this is a God who sees me. And so the first question for the church is, do you see them? Do you know who the single mothers are in your church? Do you have a ministry outreach specifically designed to them? Um, there's a ministry called The Life of the Single Mother, amazing ministry that's really focused on building a ministry component in churches. And, and really, you have to see them before we can actually engage them in a way that's going to support them. And so really, from our perspective, um, that, from my perspective, rather, that's a key thing, being able to see them and then be able to come alongside and support them. And the other thing I would say, it's so critical for single moms to come to church. So a lot of times, they, they're not coming to church <laughs> because of just the dynamics of how do we get the kids out and all those different things. And frankly, sometimes there's shame and, and guilt and things of that nature, and they don't feel welcome. Well, if that happens, and that means that that child is not seeing godly husbands and godly mothers in marriages. And so what do you have? Well, you have much more likely to have the replication of a single mother home because they're not seeing the very thing that you want them to be. And so it's critical, in my view, for the church to really be a place for single moms to go for support, to help break that cycle and for us to view them the way that we should, which is essentially that they're cultural widows with cultural orphans in, in that context. And we know the church has a very specific call to widows and orphans. If we're interested in religion, that is pure and uh, uh, faultless in God's sight. And so that's a core thing, a significant thing, but a thing that, frankly, just is not happening in churches as much as it needs to. Yeah. And Roland, as uh, much of the story, right, is your own story of being raised with a as by a single mom, I'm wondering how how you were raised shaped then how you parented. Like, how did that, uh, yeah, kind of mold who you became as a father? Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting question because I, you know, I I didn't have the modeling when I was growing up, and God, it really was a situation that God was a father to the fatherless. Um, but again, a core thing for me, by the grace of God, is that I went to church. So when I went to church, I saw my pastor, Pastor Culp, being a husband to his wife and and, and a husband to his wife and a father to his kids. And I saw other men in the church, so it cast a vision for me. And I actually, another part of the story, <laughs> a part of the plot is I got my girlfriend pregnant when I was in college, and so you know there was an option for me, frankly, not to be a married father, just like my dad had gotten my mom pregnant when, when she was 16 and, 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 and he was, uh, he was uh, 18. And so I could have gone down that same path. But in my mind, being a father without being a husband didn't connect for me. Why? Because I was in church and I saw husbands and fathers. And so we got married and we've been married almost 40 years. 40 years has come in May as a, re as a result of you know, that modeling that I saw in the church. And that's why going back to the first point, it's so critical that we help single moms get to church so that their, their daughters and their sons can see this, have this vision cast for them, for them of what a godly family looks like in the context of a father and mother who are married to each other and, and really kind of breaks the cycle. Oh, it sounds like such a great book and such an important word, Rollin. Thank you so much for writing it. Where can our listeners connect with you and 
find your books and find out more about CareNet as well? Absolutely. For, for CareNet, you just go to care-net.org, care-net.org. And also that ministry uh, approach to, to the life issue, you can find us at makinglifedisciples.com, makinglifedisciples.com to learn more about how your church and the small groups in your church can start coming along folks who are facing pregnancy decisions. In terms of getting the book, uh, you know, certainly InterVarsity Press, their site, Amazon as well. Uh, the book's been doing very well there. So I hope folks will go out and get it. And, and, and it's for single moms and frankly, those who love and want to support single moms as well, whether you're the ministry context or in a personal context, I really encourage you uh, to get it. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Great. The book again is Raising Sons of Promise, a guide for single mothers of boys. Roland Warren, he's a president and CEO of CareNet and also the author of that book. Roland, great book. Great to get to know you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Blessings to you. Absolutely. To you as well. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, we've got a somebody we like to refer to as a teammate here, uh, somebody you can hear regularly on this station. His name is Alistair Begg. You can hear encouragement from Alistair Begg on Truth For Life every weekday at 7.30 a.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, I wanted to uh, encourage us a little bit with uh, with the gospel. What, uh, Alistair Begg, this is a portion from a message he preached called The Power and the Message of the Cross. Uh, two minutes, Aubrey, and he's going to speak about the thief on the cross. And and again, one of the things we like to do is to try to like shake us out of like the stories we've heard a million times mm. if you've grown up in the church. And instead, go, no, 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 really think about what's going on here. And so Alistair Begg, with his great accent and with some great humor and, and in a profound way, talks about the thief on the cross. Let's listen to that. If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. What an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you 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 were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, did Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. I'll get the supervisor angel. So, we just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy said, "I never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. All right, Aubrey, I've never really thought when the thief on the cross enters heaven and, and, uh, and, and, you know, the angel says, why should I let you in this idea of like, I don't know. That guy said I could come. There's so much good stuff here. And, And I really thought the most powerful thing it's all powerful, but that part in the beginning where Alistair Begg talks about, uh, if you answer the question of why should I let you in, mm. in the first person, you're missing the point. 
Oh, I think yes. is so powerful. Give me some reflections on what Pastor Alistair Begg had to say here. I mean, that, you know, it's it's interesting sometimes when like, you know, the gospel, but it hits you afresh. Yeah. And that honestly brought me to tears mm-hmm. because I do think about, I mean, okay, let me think small scale and then big scale. Small scale, I think of how many times I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and they asked me like, okay, if you were to be asked, like, why should I let you to heaven? What's the answer? And you're like, oh, because I prayed the prayer because I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior because I, and just to like turn that on its head and go, oh, wait, it wasn't about me at all. Like Mm. that, I just, I don't know why that like hits so hard right now, but I think part of it is going to the big picture. I you know, I, earlier this week, we, we talked a little bit about Ruth Cho Simmons' book, When Striving Cease. And mm-hmm. I, I think right now, so many of us, and I include myself in this, are in a moment of striving and hustling and trying to prove our worth. And, and ultimately, when we do that, whether or not we realize it, I really think we're trying to save ourselves. Mm. We're forgetting like that the work has already happened on the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus, that he has already paid the price, that he has done the striving so we don't have to. And I think this is just a reminder of that. Like, of course, he does it with humor and and charm, but it is a powerful message to remember like, oh, wait, my salvation is not dependent on me. My Mm. acceptance by God is not dependent on me, but by this man hanging on the cross on my behalf. And I mean, it moves you to tears. It moves me to tears anyway. Yeah, I I, uh, I love that idea that the thief on the cross, there was nothing about his life that made him deserve to to be uh, allowed entry into heaven, right? Yeah, like, yeah. but yet Jesus says, "You're going to be in paradise with me today," mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's kind of like the story of the prodigal son, where you can have two reactions to that story. One, you can shake your fist and say, that's not fair. He shouldn't be let in. Right. Or you go, praise God that he could get uh, in because that yes. gives me hope. Yeah. Uh, and this idea, I think a lot of us, you know, Aubrey, you and I were pastors. We host a Christian radio show. Yeah. We went to Wheaton College. We have right. master's <laughs> degrees. And I think oftentimes those types of credential building things make it harder to grasp the simplicity and kind of the scandal totally. of the gospel. You begin totally. to going, man, look at all that I do for God. He has to let me in or he's got to accept me. And it's never about us. It's not about us in the beginning, the middle or the end. But don't you think that could be hard to remember over time as I get more and more religious? Yeah. And I, I, I don't know what that tendency is. I'm grateful that the Bible talks about it. So obviously this has been a human tendency for centuries to try to save ourselves again and again and again and try to like collect merits and collect accolades and achieve more and more and more. And I think you're, you're especially right that it's a temptation in the world that we live in when we're sort of like literally you and I are existing in the Christian bubble all the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. that there is a temptation to feel like you have to constantly better yourself or know more or prove your worth in the like evangelical industrial complex, which mm-hmm. is so twisted. Like I think we have just let the enemy uh, re- like cause us to forget this powerful truth of the gospel that it just One, it's not dependent on us. Two, God doesn't need us to do all of that. And three, while these might be good things, a master's degree might be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Serving a church might be a good thing. Having a Christian radio show might be a good thing. They are secondary things when compared Mm -hmm. with the joy of simply knowing Jesus and the power of the cross. Yes, yes. And uh, again, the simplicity that Alistair Begg speaks with there, with a great accent, again, in (laughs) saying If you answer the question as to why God should accept you ever in the first person, you're missing the point that it's not about what you do. Mm. It's about what God has done in Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that's true when you first hear the gospel. That's true when you've been a Christian for 10 years. That's true when you've been a church, a Christian for 50 years. Uh, That is always true. So really thankful for that good word from Alistair Begg. Again, the entire message is called The Power and Message of the Cross. I'm sure you can find it at YouTube. Uh, You can also hear encouragement from Alistair on Truth For Life weekdays at 7.30 a.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life. Well, it's Friday. We are glad to have you with us. Coming up next, seven things Christians should give up if we want to reach unchurched people. That's going to be a provocative discussion next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope For Your Life. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. Brian, I have a, a question for you as a church leader. I'm ready. Okay. So how, I, mean, I know you're going to say you're very passionate, but you're really honest with us. How passionate would you say your church is about reaching unchurched people? Really passionate. Oh, I love that. Oh, <laughs> well, awesome. I, I honestly, and it starts at the top. And uh, I would say it's it's um, it is easy to lose focus, right? Mm. And it becomes easy to go. This is just about us and this, and uh, you want to reach um, unchurched people, right? That's why we planted a church where we did. But I think an interesting thing in that conversation, Aubrey, is that you can also take that too far. Yeah, and you say uh, the church is just the church's mission is solely to reach unchurched people. I also don't think that's true. I I don't think that that is the purpose of church. So I don't think the purpose of church is just for the people uh, in the in the room uh, mm-hmm. that currently. But I also don't think the only purpose of church is for the people outside the room. Meaning that those in the room are a means to an end to go reach. I think every church has to strike a balance hmm. of. How do we at how do we simultaneously build, disciple, grow the community that we have? Yeah. While also being mindful that there's a community out there that needs to hear the good news of the gospel and needs church community. I think that's the dance. That's the church mm. you want to be. You agree with that? You think I'm right about that? What's that saying, Brian? I, I'm going to botch it. It's very famous. So forgive me. But like the church is the only organization that it's, exists for its non-members, something mm-hmm. like that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think what you're saying is that that's not totally true. Like it certainly is true. Like, we are here to make disciples, period. Mm-hmm. And and that is drawing people not to just go to church, but like to be a part of a church body. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Um, but that we also, part of our role is to really care for those who are in the flock already. Right. Right. And I, I do think churches tend to either go one way or the other. And both matter. Like both are deeply, deeply important. And I would say, especially after the past couple of years we've had, like, the people in our churches are needing to be cared for in deep, right. deep ways, but then so are our cities, so are our neighbors. So we can't forget that we're here to bear witness to the gospel to people who don't know the gospel. And um, ultimately, that's what, when we say unchurched, I think we're not just talking about like getting people in the doors of your service, but we're right. talking about bringing people into gospel community into a life of faith with Jesus Christ. Agreed. But, Agreed. but yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Both things matter. Well, even um, thinking of Sunday morning, I think yeah. so often the conversation is like, is Sunday morning service for the church people mm. or do we need to make it so attractive that people outside mm. the church want to come? And I, I would like to answer that with a both and. Like right. I like, would like yes. to say that we're doing such a good job of loving each other, worshiping Jesus in whatever style. Like this isn't about style, right? Yeah. Like That's where I start to get mad at these conversations. Well, if you just did this, the mm-hmm. non-church people. No, I think they're going to be drawn to genuine community and love. Absolutely. And so do I have a place where generally, genuinely we're growing that sort of community that then is also an open door to be attractive to people who aren't already a part of that community? And that's a really hard balance. And so often the issue becomes, oh, if we just, you know, have the, let's be really stereotypical. If we just have this smoke machine, if the pastor just told more jokes, if we just played this kind of music or had this kind of coffee in the, in the, in the, uh, in the welcome area, then we'd, we'd, we'd be flooded by a non-churched people. We just know that's not true. Yeah, we know that's not true. What is it that's going to be attractive? It's actual, genuine community uh, built among the people. So for me, it's a both and. And uh, when you go too far either way, I think it becomes problematic. You know, it's so interesting that you bring up things like the smoke machine and the cool music or whatever, because over at churchleaders.com, Carrie Newhoff, kind of a church leadership guru, writes seven things Christians should give up to reach unchurched people. And uh, one of the things that he talks about is this concept of music. He says that we think we're playing contemporary music in our churches and that's going to be what's drawing people in. But if you actually listen to church, like top, if you actually listen to top 40, that your music at your church, even as quote unquote contemporary as it is, does not sound like that. Mm-hmm. Like it may sound like music in the nineties, but it doesn't sound like 
music in 2022. And I, he says, just be honest. Like, don't call yourself contemporary if you're some paler version of contemporary. Just be honest if you're trying to reach unchurched people. And you don't have to like, you don't actually have to change your music to make it more uh, sound like today's top 40, but just be honest about what your church actually is, that that's something that'll draw people in. So I thought that was interesting. That was his number one thing that uh, Christians should get rid of to reach unchurched people. Music is one of those. Yeah. And I think, I think we just need to think about what are the stumbling blocks? Mm. If a new person walks in, if an unchurched person walks in, what are the stumbling blocks that are going to be hard as they're in? And so he brings up a couple that I think are, are near the top of the list, right? Politics is going to be, if, if a new believer, uh, not even a new believer, if a new person comes in and they want to get a feel for your church and they're, you know, figuring out, trying to like, do I believe in this Jesus? Yeah. And they're kind of thinking about bigger questions and they come in and they hear stuff about politics and yeah. they hear stuff about the kingdom of this world. I think that that is missing an opportunity and it's going to push people away. I think if they get a feel that everything's just so slick and this and that, if it, if they're all they're hearing about is money and this, I think these become stumbling blocks because they play into what people think churches are. What people need to hear is who is Jesus? Mm -hmm. Uh, Why are we taking, why is these group of people taking a time to be together? And have you ever been around a group of people where they're good friends or they're this, you're like, I wish my family or my friend group or whatever was like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I would have to think if I was out searching for a church right now, Maybe this is just me. I think that would be number one for me. Wow. Like, what do these people genuinely believe this and genuinely care about each other? Mm. Um, Obviously, programs, having kids, programs are going to be big. The preaching is going to be big. All of that stuff matters. But for me, I would want to see a genuineness of community. That's good. Uh, like that people genuinely like seem to enjoy each other and like each other. It's super hard to build, but I think that that is it. But so we spend so much of our time talking about like, I don't know if the if the pastor wears these clothes or we have right. this kind of giveaway right. if we give this right. to visitors if right. we sing this way and those are all important those those I'm not saying that that doesn't matter but I just don't think those things are primary. You know, I I think the other thing like the category of all of these things and I'll I'll read some more from this article in just a minute but I I think sometimes we forget that people know they're walking into a church. So we yes. don't have to like apologize for like Singing songs, reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, taking communion. Like people aren't like, oh no, I accidentally walked into a church. Like they know their friend invited them to church or they know they're, they're walking into the doors of a church for the very first time. Now, certainly there are things that we need to do to like help it not be so awkward. And, and cause it's a brave step to walk into a new church for the first time, but like you don't have to like bait and switch people. They literally know they've walked into a church. And I think sometimes we, we feel like we have to apologize for who we are when I think what you're saying, the opposite is true. Like, let's be a faithful Christian community and allow the gospel to draw people in. Yeah. I just think, again, I've always worked at churches, so I've never been searching for a church. Yeah. I just think if I walked into a church, though, and it was like all slick and they were like, for lack of a better way of putting it, just trying too hard. Mm. I think that would be one of the biggest turnoffs to me. Uh, yeah, I, and if I I'm the church person and I get those things mm-hmm. already, how much more must that be for the non-church person? So I would just, I think there's an authenticity that needs to happen. Like if you're a pastor out there, a church leader, worship leader, whatever, just be yourself. Own own who you are. Yeah, like, that's hey, good. This is who our church is and we'd love to have you join us, but this is who we are. Yeah, and let me actually just share this. This article again has seven things you can give up. You can go to churchleaders.com come and read it if you want to. But the last thing that Carrie Newhuff says, and we should give up our lives. Christians should be the most generous, selfless people on the planet. I think this is what you're talking about, Brian. If those coming into our church would see that, or they those in our neighborhood would see us going out to serve them, then they would be drawn mm-hmm. in. So that's mm-hmm. a, hopefully a good, encouraging word for you. When we return... We are doing something we love. It is our very first top five list of 2022. I can't wait to tell our listeners what it is. You'll have to stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And Brian, we are thrilled because it is Friday. And that means it is time for our very first top five list of 2022. Let's go ahead and take a listen to that theme song. 
Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right, Brian, 2022. Do you want to announce to the people what our very first top five list is? Yeah, I, I think this is a fun one. This is going to be so often we talk about how much we hate the winter, especially in Chicago. Just hate the winter time. It's so brutal. It's cold. But we thought we would do. Let's start out on the positive. What are the top five things we love about winter? What are our favorite things that, that you can't do these things or experience these things in the summertime? It's a winter thing. And so these are top five things we enjoy about the winter. I am very excited about this. All right, Brian, why don't you kick us off with your number five? All right. All right. And the one that didn't make it, maybe this will be considered a uh, an honorable mention, but I didn't even know how to say this one. But there is one about not feeling guilty being inside. That would be my honorable mention. Just, you know, in the summer, I mean, you, don't like just, you have to be outside. Don't just jump into the honorable mentions, Brian. I feel like you're a little bit rusty about how this goes. That was just more like I didn't know how to make that one. But here we go. Number five. This might surprise some people. Uh I actually enjoy, not if there's a ton of snow and it's all wet, but generally speaking, I don't have a huge driveway. I love shoveling. I Do love you when it really? Snows. Yes, I love when it snows, getting all bundled up. Kids will come out. We'll play in the snow a little bit, but then and then shoveling the driveway. This listening is sort to of like your love for uh, mowing it's the lawn. Very similar. Now, if I had a huge driveway, I don't think this would be the case. Uh, and I will preface this by saying when you get like six to eight inches and it's that really heavy snow, this isn't true for me anymore. Okay. But it's like, okay. You got like three inches. You got to clear it. I love it. It's nice to be outside shoveling my number five. Okay. Wow. Wow. That is nowhere on my list, but I, I'm proud of you for that, Brian. All right. My number five is fires in the fireplace. This girl is on We turn on our fireplace every morning when we wake up. We have it on every evening in the winter. It is my favorite thing in the world. It's why I'm a house owner, so I can have a fireplace. There you go. There you go. Okay, number four for me. And I would say I do this much less often than I did when my kids were younger, uh, which is probably good because I'm a little older now, so it's a little more difficult. But I love sledding. Just oh, going sledding. out, finding that hill. And uh, especially when the kids were younger and they would just get all bundled up. Carrie and I were joking the other day because we were getting out all the snow stuff for the kids. Uh, but, you know, now they're older, so they can dress themselves. And we were like, do you remember when your kids were little, little, and it would take you like 45 minutes to get them ready to go oh, outside? Oh, man. <laughs> so stressful. But number four for me is sledding. Okay. Wow. I think you'll find, Brian, like usual, that ours are mostly opposites because none of mine involve being outdoors or doing anything That's outside awesome. in the in the winter. So that is kind of funny. You know, one thing I'll say, too, uh, about what you said, I used to, I grew up in Oklahoma, so we didn't have winters like this. Mm -hmm. So like the, having kids in winter in Chicago was like so stressful for me like how do you know that you have all the right stuff and when do you get it and yes so i feel you okay my number four you're gonna laugh at this but it is um watching this is us starting every january and this is the final season so i don't know what i'm gonna do next year but it is my favorite winter show that that feels like you went you went off the grid there that well, feels you like know, you that's what I do. That's what I do. <laughs> okay. So that is one of my favorite things to do every January and February. You said we would be completely different. Not true. Oh. Number three, and I have to preface this, that this will sound odd because Carrie, our house does not have a fireplace. But number three for me is being somewhere with a fire in the fireplace. So we were Oh, up you guys got to come over. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law's cabin up in Wisconsin, we were there between Christmas and New Year's, and there's always just a big fire going mm, in the fireplace. Love that. And you just love that smell, that sound, the heat that comes from a fireplace. So yes. the best thing I can do at my house is just turn the heat up. <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, you know, wrap yourself in a blanket up in your yeah. bed or whatever. But I do. If I if and when I buy another house, if it's in the north, I will want to get, make sure it has a fireplace. Love a fire in a fireplace. Uh, I love a fire in a fireplace, too. Okay. Uh, I can guarantee my number three is not on your list, Brian. But it is cute winter fashions. <laughs> I love sweaters and jeans and boots and cute coats and a little hats and scarves and gloves. So winter fashions are uh, my number three. 
I mean, I, I yes, we that is not on my list. I do feel like I could have gone with winter is hoodie season. Oh, okay, okay, and, and you do love a hoodie. Wearing one as we speak, and so <laughs> yeah, I, I I see where you're coming from. Okay, okay, thank number you. Number two, and this more harkens back to when we were kids, but now we live this through our children. And I actually wonder if this is going to go away now in the hmm. world of remote learning. But number two is the snow day. Oh, I used to love a snow day. You're you, right, Brian. Do you remember when uh, – so my parents were both in the public schools. And so we'd get the phone call really early in the oh. morning. And I can remember if it woke you. Like you went to bed knowing there was snow coming. And if you heard that phone call, then you knew it was at least a delayed opening. But uh, but that it could very well be a snow day. That feeling of a snow day, uh, which is much better than the Chicago version, which is the bitterly cold day. I love right. the snow right the like day. negative ten days <laughs> exactly. Yes. Do you think the snow day is going to go away with yes. virtual learning? Yes, do you? I think the snow day is a thing of the past because of virtual learning. A hundred percent, I do. It's sad to me, but I think it's a reality now. Can uh, can teachers do virtual learning from their own homes? Yes. Because you wouldn't want to make the teacher go in. Right, right. I, I still think the snow day is a thing of the past. Because last year, there were a number of cold days and the kids just went remote learning instead, at least I in wonder, our district. Because that what that would require is that p- teachers have it all ready to go when yep. they go home. Yep. So I hope not. The snow day feels like everything every kid should be able to enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Snow day is an amazing thing. That's a good one. All right. My number two is warm food like soups. Chilies, hot yes. chocolate, that kind of that winter food. I guess winter you could put food. it in a category. Chili That's- and soup. I, I, I'm with you. I, yeah, I, yeah, and like That's some good. warm cornbread. Yeah, okay. so good. Okay, that's not all right. A bad do you one. have honorable mentions before we dive into? Well, our I already one. shared the not feeling guilty about being inside, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes in the summer, you're like, oh, I should be outside. Yep. It's so beautiful. We wait all yep. the time. When it's freezing, you're like, I'm going to sit in that recliner. I am going to put my absolutely, feet up absolutely. So that was one. I do think you you turned me on to one that being hoodie season. I think that's oh good. One. Okay, okay. Uh, but that's 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 as far as I'll go with my honorable mentions. How about you? Any honorable mentions? Well, this is maybe like a little bit uh, bougie, but. I love traveling somewhere warm in the winter because you really appreciate it, right? Like you're like, oh, I'm so glad I'm in Florida. I'll n- I'll never be in sunshine like this again for months. Oh, and there's when- something about that like it's better in the winter than it is in the summer. What I love about the winter is when Kevin and I can cruise the when, Caribbean. <laughs> when we can when we can winter in Florida is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> That's really good. All right, number one, you mentioned it kind of. It kind of okay. fit in yours. Uh, number one for me is uh, I went with hot chocolate with marshmallows. Mm, oh yeah, oh when yeah. There's outside, nothing like doing it. Some of these other yep. things, shoveling or sledding, yep. or you're going to sit by the fire. Yeah, a good cup of hot chocolate it has to have marshmallows on it yep. preferably the small marshmallows uh you it, that is a gross drink to have in the summertime but disgusting man, but amazing in the in winter the winter when you've just come uh, inside give me some hot chocolate and marshmallows you know what i haven't done in a while and that's like make a homemade hot chocolate which i used to do like make it homemade from scratch on the stove and man, that's good. I'm gonna have to wow. do that like okay. tomorrow morning or something. Okay, Brian. So the reason I got a little mad at you about your honorable mention is because that is actually my number one. Oh. I like the justification <laughs> for staying in and being lazy because I am not an outdoor person. And so I love that there is no pressure in winter at all. You get that one then. Thank you. Thank you. I will take it. There is no pressure in winter at all to be like, you must go outside. You must go soak up some vitamin D. You must go exercise. No, I don't. I don't have to do any of that in the winter. I can sit with my blanket by my fire and read or watch This Is Us. And like, no one's mad about it. That's my favorite thing. I, 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 I felt guilty about that one, but you have talked me into it. That's a good one. Okay. Okay. I'm glad. Well, anyway, that is our first time. Top five list of 2022, things we love about winter. If we missed anything, if you want to add anything, you let us know on social media at Common Good Talk. But I'm glad we're back, Brian. It feels good to be Mm -hmm. doing a top five list with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.